Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going far farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. You know, this is a traditional Western church greeting that when we say Christ is risen, we greet each other by saying he is risen indeed. And sometimes in other churches, not necessarily this one, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm willing to try with certain members, uh, only certain members, I'm sorry. Uh, they would just kiss him right in the cheek three times, like, Mwah, Christ is risen. And then he he's risen indeed. So uh, some of you, not all. Um, but even Paul does say, all joking aside, to greet each other with a holy kiss. And I can't, I can't help but to imagine that even Christians, as they were greeting each other, they would kiss each other with the holy kiss, and they would say, Christ is risen. And they would respond, he is risen indeed. The greeting is ultimately based from this passage that we read, that um, disciples will say, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. 
And we don't know maybe exactly how it first became, came into usage, but we kind of can tell going back into history that this was something incredible, something incredible that we or they witnessed and that we have received now as tradition. But it is not empty tradition. The words, he is risen, reminds us of the joyous news and celebration of Easter, that Jesus' death was not in vain, that he has the power to overcome death, and that is why we say he is risen to share this incredible truth with one another. The resurrection of Christ gives us hope for salvation and for our own resurrection and eternal life. This is a true story, but not mine. In college, there was a student that was asked to prepare a lesson. And he was thinking, how can he be creative? How can he drive the, a point home in a memorable way? And he decided to title his mini lecture, The Law of the Pendulum. The Law of the Pendulum. And the law of the pendulum is this. A pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. Because of friction and gravity, when the pendulum returns, it falls short of its original release point. And each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc until finally it is at rest. The point of the rest is the state of equilibrium, where all forces acting on the pendulum are equal, of course, we probably went through this in public school. And so this student decided to attach a three-foot string to a child's toy top and secured it at the back of the blackboard to prepare with a thumbtack. And he pulled the top to one side and he let it go. And of course, when it swung all the way up and then it came back, it did not reach the original release point, so he would mark it where it reached up to. And then it swung again, and then he would mark it, swung again, and when it came back, he marked that point all the way until it rested. It took about two or three minutes, and then he stopped, and then he was able to show that the pendulum, or the law of the pendulum is true. Look at the markings. And then he asks this question, how many people in the room believed the law of the pendulum was true. And of course, everybody, all of his classmates, even the professor, raised their hand. And he started to say, this is just the beginning. What he really prepared was from the steel beams of the ceiling, he made a crude but functional pendulum he put together 250 pounds of metal weights together and he tied it with four strands of 500 pound test parachute cord. And then he invited the instructor to climb up on a table which was against the wall. So his head would be against the wall. And then he brought the 250 pounds of weight right up until it was a fraction of an inch away from his nose. And then he said, sir, do you believe that the law of the pendulum is true? And then there was a long pause from the professor. And he said, yes, I do. And then he let go. 
But as he let go, you could see the professor had cold sweat dripping from his face, and his top lip was quivering. And as he let go, 250 pounds of weight makes a noise in the air as it travels. And so it made this whoosh noise as it traveled across the classroom all the way up until it almost hit the other wall and it started to come back making the same noise. And the professor darted off from his seat. (laughs) After that, the student asked to his class, class, does he believe in the law of the pendulum? And the students unanimously answered, no. We are in a position that's similar. We may have seen smaller things in play. We may have seen things growing up. But I believe for our church, it's time for the real test to begin. And I think this story of Cleopas and his friend going down the road to Emmaus is a pivotal story and an important story for us to recognize and understand because I believe it is our story. When they were walking down, some people think, well, let's, let's decide who Cleopas was. Was Cleopas um, Clopas from John, who was the mother of Mary. And that's kind of a big jump, so I'm not going to make that jump. I'm sure some of you may heard it before. I'm only saying it because after I give, sometimes I give a certain historical background, someone comes up to me and says, did you know this? And I want to say, yeah, but not really. But so I'm going to give you this really quick background. Uh, Clopas was actually uh, a Hebrew name, and Cleopas is obviously uh, a Greek name. It could be the same person, but it's a big jump. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, so we don't know for sure. All we do know is Cleopas and the other disciple was walking down the road to Emmaus, and Luke has them described as one of them. One of them means they were one of the disciples, not the 11, but the one of the people that followed Jesus. So they knew. And I really want to say this again and emphasize this again. I want us to correlate ourselves and this church and our lives with Cleopas and his companion. They knew. They followed him. They walked with him. They saw all these things. They saw the claims that he made. And they were talking with each other as they went back. So undoubtedly, they saw the crucifixion of Jesus take place. They saw that He died a miserable, horrible, suffering death. And they had to rest because it was Sabbath. And when Sabbath was over, they heard these things like, oh, the tomb was empty, okay. Jesus wasn't there, okay. But what did they do? They still traveled back, back down the road to Emmaus. This is about a seven-mile walk. And we see that Jesus himself joins them on this journey back to Emmaus. One of the things that's curious to me is that if you hear the tomb is empty, 
If someone tells you, Elder Sung died the other day. I mean, he's, he's alive, he's right here. So, Elder Sung died and we had this whole funeral, we had the viewing, you know, that means they drained all the blood and his face had makeup on, they put a suit on him and they put him into the ground. And then the next day, someone says, actually the tomb where he was buried is empty. I'm like, that's good to know. Let me go back home now. That's, that's a little weird, but that's exactly what happened. So it's, for me, that, that was the astonishing part that they decided to go back, even though there was talk that the tomb was empty. The point being is this. If the tomb is indeed empty, we must investigate. If the tomb is empty, you have to investigate. But as they were walking down the road, they were blinded, it says. They're spiritually blinded and kept from seeing the truth. They did not recognize Jesus. They just didn't know. Up until the very end, from the beginning of the gospel to this point here of all the gospels, it kind of shows us that the disciples just didn't get it. These are people that walk with him, talk with him, broke bread with him spent their whole lives together with him. They didn't get it, even though they went to church every Sunday. They were blinded. They couldn't see. But here it makes an additional point saying that they were kept from seeing. This is an absolutely true story. I put that out there because this was, to me, a fantastical event. And... When I, when I drive home, I have um, a little kind of curved road that I drive down before I get to my apartment, and there's another road here. And I live on that other corner of that road. But in this road that's intersecting the main road that I drive down, there is a small road, and there's a stop sign there. But when I was driving home yesterday, uh, there was a car right in the middle of the intersection. So, and it was coming up from where the stop sign was. So this person had obviously just passed the stop sign and decided to just wait into the middle of the intersection. So, you know, what, what would you normally do? You know, I did what I would normally do as a good Christian. I decided to honk as loud as I can, yell out the window, get out of the road. Uh, no, I didn't. Um, I slowed down and then I, I came to a stop, even though it was my right of way. I came to a stop so that that person can completely make the turn. And I saw this car turning. Not that it matters, it was a Prius. Um, <laughs> I saw this car turning, and it was a very elderly woman, very elderly woman. She turned so slowly. And she turned so slowly that I was able to see her go like this. If, if this is me, I saw the car go like this, and then she looked at me. And so, because she was so slow, I looked at her, and I smiled, and I waved, and then she waved, and then she turned her hand and gave me the finger. I'm not even kidding, this actually happened. So she turned and gave me the finger, and I was like, that was interesting. <laughs> so I just went home. I, I just, I didn't know how to respond. How do you respond to that? And so, uh, you know, I just decided in my heart, uh, I would judge all Prius drivers from now on. <laughs> no, um, I decided to do the pastorly thing 
and say, oh my goodness, she just unknowingly uh, touched God's anointed. It's in Psalms, by the way. So I better pray for her forgiveness just as Jesus did the day before. Father, forgive her for she does not know how to drive <laughs> or what she's doing at all. Um, and so sometimes you may all have experienced this. And I think I hear it a lot. Every time someone drives and comes, it's like, oh, I had the worst experience on the road today. Everybody's an idiot. Everybody's an idiot. And you just experience probably terrible drivers on the road and just gets you so mad. And then you think everybody else is a bad driver. In this story, the people that you think should have been good drivers are actually the bad drivers. The people who should have seen are the ones that were the most blind. And then they come around, turn, and give you the finger. It's like, where is that coming from? But Jesus was walking with them, and they didn't even know it was him. Imagine that. Imagine Jesus is sitting right next to you. You don't even know. But this is exactly what happened. And Jesus starts to explain to them, why are you so slow? And he starts explaining to them the scriptures, the prophets, and all that they had said was actually about Jesus, that he had to suffer and die. Which brings us to our next point. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die? It's to bear our burdens. It's to bear our griefs and sorrows. We have griefs, we have sorrows, and no one else can take them. I think we've tried. We try to put it on other people. We try to put it on our spouse, into our significant others, or dream that once I have a spouse, I can put it on them and I will be okay. But people that are married can tell you this is not true because this is a universal truth. No one can bear your burdens. No one can bear your grief and your sorrow. But there was one that could and that did. In Isaiah 53, verse 3 and 4, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and unacquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die to pay the price for our sins? The next two verses of Isaiah 53 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die to reconcile us to God? In Isaiah chapter 53, again, later verses 10 and 11, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus, as he was walking down the road to Emmaus, was explaining why he had to suffer and die. Because suffering precedes glory. If he did not suffer and he did not rise again, he was not glorified, thereby nullifying everything he did while he was alive. So why did he have to rise again? There's something called the Hayflick limit that some of you may know. The Hayflick limit basically is this. You know how the saying goes, your days are numbered? The Hayflick limit is a scientific explanation of that. The Hayflick limit states that you have a numbered amount. Ever since you were an embryo in your parents' or your mom's stomach, you have a numbered amount of how many times a cell can replicate before it cannot replicate anymore. That's the Hayflick limit. The Hayflick limit is there because of um, telomeres, which are like little protein endings to chromosomes so that they don't, they don't disintegrate or detach. But every time a cell reproduces and splits, uh, the telomere, actually a little bit of it falls off. That's how uh, scientists explain kind of aging. The older you are, the older you look because your cells are literally dying. The chromosomes are falling apart. This is a very uplifting kind of message for Easter, I know. But this has to be said because this Hayflick limit even scientifically shows us that our days are numbered. Now science knows that science alone can't do everything right now, so science people that know science should be humble, and they are, most of them, knowing that we still have much more to learn, much more to explore, much more universe to find out. And so when we see this, we see now, even in Western medicine, that if you are suffering from cancer, you have to want to live too. I can't just attack the cancer cells. There's something in the spirit that goes on You have to have a desire to live. There's something more than just cell reproduction here at stake. There's something in the spirit and the soul that needs to happen. And we know that as Christians, that the Bible shows us that when death started was when sin happened. Sin is what took eternal life away from us. The tree of life was barred from us, from our approaching, even our access to it. But what didn't change was Ecclesiastes, what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that God had put eternity in the heart of man. There's eternity in your heart. What we don't normally see is the whole entire verse. And the entire verse says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. Why did he have to rise again? It's to give us salvation, to guarantee our resurrection, and to defeat death. You know, even if we 
found out a way to counter the Hayflick limit, to get these telomeres to not disintegrate and fall off every time a cell reproduced, you could still be killed. It's just like, I think that's how they really got the vampire idea, you know? You just cut off the head and then there's no way that you're coming back from that. You could still be killed. But Jesus' resurrection does more than just obliterate the Hayflick limit. It gives you a defeat of death in your grasp. Jesus was glorified so that we can also be glorified. But this is the thing about the resurrection. If Jesus is risen, remember we started off with this. If the tomb is empty, we need to do our due diligence and find out, is the, is the tomb really empty? I got to find out because people really thought the tomb was empty. People gave up their lives because they sincerely thought the tomb was empty. Like Jesus' tomb is empty. And that clicked something in the apostles that they would die these horrible, horrific deaths even. And they did it without hesitation because they saw the empty tomb and something clicked inside for them. You could say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but really, God, can, can you just wait till I get married? I mean, this marriage is going to be lit. I'm going to have so much fun. I'm gonna invite my friends, my family, we're gonna party like there's no tomorrow. So maybe you could come after so there literally is no tomorrow, Jesus. But the disciples didn't see it that way. When they saw the empty tomb, they saw something and it clicked for them. Because if Jesus was risen, then everything that he claimed is true. If Jesus is risen, everything that he claimed is true. And what is one of those things? It's that he would rise again. He would rise again. You know, if you came and told me, I have the secret to unending life, and I said to you, mm, I don't think so, but then you die, and then you come back to life again, you'd be like, I have the secret to unending life, and I'd be like, mm, I believe you, give me some of that secret. I don't care how much it costs, I'm going to buy it from you. I don't care if it takes me my mortal life to get this. I am going to get that. If Jesus is risen from the dead, every single thing he claimed is true. No one else in history was able to do it. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not any Hindu god, no other religious figure was able to come back from the grave and show himself to his disciples. In fact, we see that the people that saw him risen again were numerous. If Jesus is risen again, there's something that needs to click in our spirits, our minds, and our bodies. Because if Jesus was risen, then everything he claimed is true. That's why today is such an incredible day. That's why Easter is an incredible holiday for us Christians. But something happened that made these particular disciples, Cleopas and the other one, uh, actually see Jesus. It says, and this is what we do in the communion table, 
It says that uh, when Jesus broke the bread, then their eyes were opened. That's how we take the breaking of bread very seriously in our church, and all, as all churches do. This is not just breaking of bread in communion. Communion is incredibly important. But we don't see here that he poured any wine or anything like that. But there was a breaking of the bread. Once he broke the bread, people recognized him. And so that's why we take breaking bread seriously. That's why on Easter, instead of communion, we do communion on Good Friday. But on Easter, we literally break bread downstairs together. This is my plug for the luncheon, you guys. Just come down and eat with us. Break the bread. You're like, whoa, Jesus is here. But seriously, that's, that's what happened, though. That's what happened. When they decided to go and walk with Jesus, they were just listening to him. They still didn't recognize him. But once Jesus broke the bread, they're like, Jesus? The true miracle happens in breaking of bread between brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a mystery that's been given to us that we are to follow. In fact, the Lucan narrative, the Gospel of Luke, only gives three big parts where there's a breaking of bread. And I'm going to give you those three right now. The number one is the feeding of the 5,000. After Jesus fed the 5,000, he broke the bread, gave thanks to God. He broke the bread. It says they ate and they were all satisfied. Number two. When it happened right before his crucifixion, the Lord's Supper, Jesus broke the bread and he goes, remember me. And number three, when he broke the bread in front of the disciples in Emmaus, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. This is why we need to break bread with one another. We need to be satisfied. We need to remember Jesus. And we need our eyes open. That's why we break bread with one another, asking that Christ come and be with us. And when Christ comes and he is in us and you become a disciple of Christ, as we witnessed here, the baptism of our precious brothers and sisters, we see that Christ has to be everything to you. Jesus' resurrection means that Christ needs to be everything not partial. This is what Charles Spurgeon says, if Christ is not all to you, he is nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as a part savior of men. If he be something, he must be everything. And if he be not everything, he is nothing to you. Do you want to know the truth? Do you want to know Jesus? Guess what? When the disciples are walking, Jesus himself opens the scriptures to the disciples. As when we gather and when we break bread, we are praying that Jesus open the scriptures and the truth to us. I'm just going to give you one more story. There was a man who fell off a cliff and he managed to grab a tree limb on the way down and he was barely just hanging on the tree limb. And then he decided to yell up into the sky, is anyone up there? And there was actually a response. He said, I am here. I am the Lord. Do you believe me? And the man said, holding on, yes, Lord, I believe. I really believe. But I can't hold on much longer. And the response came, that's all right. If you really believe, you have nothing to worry about. 
I will save you. Just let go of the branch. A moment of pause, and then he responded, Is anyone else up there? <laughs> the word believe in Greek means to live by. It's a nice story, maybe, but it makes you ask, how often do we say that we believe that Christ can do it, that Christ has done it, Christ will do it, but refuse to let go of the branch? Don't you see, my brothers and sisters, the road to Emmaus was just the beginning. Easter is just the beginning. Hearing Jesus' voice through Scripture, knowing him and the breaking of the bread, that's the way. And that is when we say, welcome to the kingdom. He is risen means we can finally begin. Before he is risen, there was only the end to look forward to. Don't you see, when we say he is risen, it means we have the beginning and all of eternity to look forward to. That's why when we say Christ is risen, we can shout and respond with joy, he is risen indeed. We can finally enjoy a full life. We can finally enjoy God. In Good Friday, I mentioned that there is something in all of us that we desperately want, we desperately need, and I compared it to no matter who you are, no matter what kind of relationship that you have with your parents, even if you hate them, to the very core of your being because of what they did to you, somewhere for some weird reason, we want to be commended by our parents. There's something in us. We can say, forget you, I don't care, but that in the end leaves us more bitter, more angry, more hopeless. But there's something in us that wants to be commended. And I said, when Jesus died on the cross for us, what we have been imputed with is his righteousness, meaning when God commends his son, saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, that righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to us that commending, that compliment, well done, my good and faithful servant, is given to us more than the acceptance from our parents. We as human beings desire acceptance. We as creation desire acceptance from the creator. So finally, because Jesus has risen and he has risen indeed, we can enjoy a full life, which means finally we can enjoy God. My brothers and sisters, Christ is risen. Christ is risen and he is risen indeed. Let's try that one last time before I close in a prayer. Brothers and sisters of Christ, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's, let's do it with more, a little more emphatic kind of a, a tone and gesture. Some of, some of you can raise your fists. Some of you can just be so happy, just kiss the person, Mwah! like that, up to you, except, you know, I just keep it holy. That's all I ask. That's in the Bible. Brothers and sisters of Christ, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you for this time that we can celebrate you. Before we were enemies, but now through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, we are called friends of God, adopted into your kingdom. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for this day that we celebrate Christ's resurrection. You are risen indeed. Praise be your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.